Good evening in Europe. Good morning in California. If you're where I am, it's good afternoon and welcome to our program. In January, the US Federal Trade Commission requested public comment on a proposed new rule banning non-compete clauses in employment agreements on the grounds that those non-competes harm workers and inhibit competition. This bold initiative, which would make US federal regulation from a subject that's been the province of courts in the 50 states interpreting clauses in private contracts under state law, has brought fresh energy to a conversation that employment lawyers throughout the West have been having for years about non-compete agreements. Our transnational panel will try to bring multiple comparative perspectives to these issues. Cody York advises executives at Outen and Golden in New York. She's also licensed in Canada, where she practiced before moving to the States. James Hawken represents individuals and employers at Withers Worldwide in London. James is also licensed to practice law and admitted to the bar in New York. Danny Kaufer represents employers at BLG, Borden, Ladner, and Gervais in Montreal. He's in the leadership of the American Bar Association Labor and Employment Section and a familiar and well-known speaker on in labor and employment matters in Canada, the US, and Europe. My friend, Dr. Johannes Trout is at Zeitz in Germany, where he represents executives as well as employers. Dean Harvey litigates antitrust cases at Leaf Cabraser in San Francisco, including labor antitrust cases. He represented a class of 64,000 high-tech workers against Google, Apple, Intel, and other tech giants, alleging that they conspired together to suppress the mobility and the compensation of their technical skilled employees. This resulted in a settlement of $435 million. That's US dollars. Dean, you're an antitrust litigator sitting here today among employment lawyers. Can you tell us about the context of the FTC's proposed rule from your vantage point? Absolutely. And thank you for that introduction. And it's a pleasure to speak to primarily employment lawyers. I've said on many an antitrust panel that uh, antitrust lawyers have a lot to learn from employment lawyers. And uh, so this is, this is wonderful. And I hope there continues to be more dialogue between uh, the antitrust world and the employment world, particularly in this space. So um, I'm gonna give a little bit of context and history leading up to the proposed rule from the Federal Trade Commission from an antitrust perspective. So until 2010, uh, the antitrust laws in the United States were rarely applied in the employment context. There were occasional examples, but by and large, uh, competition for employees was governed by labor law, employment law, and so forth, and largely a function of state statutes and common law, and not subject to um, very many antitrust cases either brought privately or by uh, federal regulators. That changed in a significant way in 2010 in the case that uh, Mark refers to. And that case um, 
<laughs> the DOJ Antitrust Division filed a stipulated final judgment with those companies that that announced the existence of the investigation and also closed it at the same time by agreeing or by a document where these seven companies agreed not to enter into agreements with each other, not to hire or solicit each other's employees. They did not admit to having done so, uh, but they promised not to do it again. Uh, and there were no fines assessed. That was it. Uh, and it sat there. And no private cases were filed for a while. And we took a look at it. And I think the reason why there was so much reluctance is that the antitrust tools were not developed in the employment context. It was, it was a difficult fit. And so my firm filed uh, class action cases and um, ended up being the only firm that filed class action cases. I think there was a lot of uh, reluctance and worry that the antitrust laws just weren't a good fit. Um, and that case uh, was before Judge Coe, who's now in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, and I think created a lot of law in terms of how to apply the antitrust laws in the employment context. Um, following that case, both civil plaintiffs and federal regulators enforced the antitrust laws in the employment context, but focused on horizontal agreements between employers not to compete for each other's employees. In the antitrust laws, there's a critical distinction between horizontal agreements between competitors and vertical agreements between different levels of the distribution chain. And here in the employment context, I think it's a fairly straightforward distinction where horizontal are agreements between employers and vertical are agreements between employers and employees, um, which is the subject of, of this panel. In 2016, the DOJ and FTC issued joint guidance for human resource professionals, which laid out the standards by which the enforcement agencies would examine an agreement between employers, um, exceptions to it, what they cared about, what they didn't. They announced that uh, going forward, um, they would, the DOJ and the FTC, well, I should say the DOJ, would prosecute such cases criminally if if agreements between employers were not reasonably necessary to some larger collaborative endeavor. And they later, in fact, brought criminal cases. And there are now criminal cases in the United States, um, one in Chicago, um, another in on the East Coast, in the aerospace industry in Connecticut, um, where the DOJ is prosecuting uh, criminal charges against um, senior executives and the companies themselves for entering into these kinds of agreements. Um, in the DOJ FTC joint guidance, they said, uh, quote, note that this guidance does not address the legality of specific terms contained in contracts between an employer and an employee, including non-compete uh, clauses. That was in 2016. And in 2021, um, Joe Biden's elected president of the United States and Joe Biden issued an executive uh, order to all of his agencies um, uh, targeting competition in the American economy directing them to do whatever they can to increase competition in the economy uh, with specific reference to labor markets and specific reference to non-compete agreements. And the White House directed the FTC, or I should say encouraged, I think that's the word they used, encouraged the FTC to uh, issue a rule prohibiting non-competes. Uh, Cody, that brings us up to the rule. Do you wanna tell us about the rule and comment on 
the FTC proposed rule from, uh, from your vantage point as a lawyer representing individuals and executives in the states in New York? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. And, and thanks to IFSI for inviting me to participate today. So the, the proposed rule is a broad uh, ban on uh, a contractual term between an employer and a worker that prevents the worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or operating a business after the conclusion of the worker's employment with the employer. Um, the rule also includes a functional test as to whether a clause is a non-compete. So it won't just look at, you know, what, what is this clause called? It will look at what is the effect of this clause? Does it have the effect of uh, preventing someone from seeking or accepting employment? Um, and worker is also broadly defined. Uh, it includes, for example, people uh, classified as independent contractors. Um, the rule, uh, as, as proposed, would also apply retroactively. So uh, employers who have pre-existing non-competes in place would be required to rescind those non-competes. And also, there's a requirement for them to provide notice to the people affected by those non-competes, effectively telling them this non-compete is no longer enforceable, and there's model language for that notice that would uh, provide a safe harbor. And there is uh, one exception that's in cook, baked into the proposed rule and then there's some proposed exceptions. So the exception that's baked in um, is, is for someone who is selling a business entity and there's some guidance that says that there's a 25% ownership threshold for that exception to apply. But the rule is very vague. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions that are that are left open with the language of the proposed rule. And I think that that is intentional um, to stimulate a lot of comments in the comment period, which is currently open. Um, I think rather than trying to propose at first blush a rule with all the bells and whistles and all the details spelled out, the FTC has decided to just you know, throw a, a broad proposed rule at us and uh, hear what we have to say and then come back with something more specific. Um, and, I, and I know we will speak about um, some of these but questions, but, you know, just to sort of give a, a preview, um, you know, how would the rule affect a forfeiture for competition clause? Um, how would the rule affect a non-compete that is in a partnership agreement? How would the rule affect a non-compete entered into at the end of employment in exchange for new consideration like severance? Um, how would the rule affect fixed term employment agreements if, if the employee terminates employment for the end of that fixed term? How, how would it affect retirement, non-compete in a retirement agreement? Um, and, and I think, you know, to, Two kind of big questions are, you know, a, a thought about having an exemption for senior executives or highly compensated employees. And I know we'll talk more about that. And I think, you know, another question is, is how does this affect garden leave provisions? 
Cody, do you want to say anything about the senior executive issue now? The the as I understand, you know, the the rule is uh, on the one hand a 200-page document, which is mostly analytical material, and the actual draft rule. If you make it to page 211, that's where the uh, actual actual draft rule appears, and the report seems to suggest the that the FTC is interested in exempting senior executives however defined, but I don't think that's in the draft rule. Am I right about that? That's exactly right, Mark. The draft rule does not have any language exempting uh, senior executives. The, you know, the only exemption would be in the sale of a business, but the commentary, the, the 200 pages that lead up to the, the draft rule includes um, an invitation to comment on a proposed exemption for senior executives. Um, and I think it will come as no surprise that as somebody who represents senior executives, I do not think there should be an exemption from the rule for senior executives. Um, you know, first of all, when we talk about senior executives, these are people who are the best at what they do, right? These are the people who are at the top of their trade, um, you know, highly compensated people, highly technical people. These are the type of people that, you know, from the perspective of the, the economy and uh, the public in general, we want these people contributing their work to the economy. Um, these are also real people who have families and lives and the effects of non-competes is just as real on them as, as they are on any other workers. Um, and third, I think any exemption for a certain level of worker inevitably leads to misclassification issues where, you know, people are classified as being a higher level executive than in practice they are. And I think that just leads us down a road to, you know, more disputes, more litigation over this, you know, particular proposed loophole. Dan and Calfer, you bring a special perspective to this issue because it turns out you, uh, that similar action, banning non-competes, is already law in Ontario province, which I remind our audience includes the powerhouse commercial cities of Toronto and Ottawa. Can you talk with us from the perspective of a lawyer whose employer clients are doing business in Ontario, but also all over Canada? Thank you, Mark. And again, uh, thank you to uh, Claire Murray and her entire group uh, for this invitation. Uh, I'm always amazed uh, at how Claire gets out, of, out in front of all these issues. And again, I thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, Canada brings a really interesting perspective. Uh, we have two legal systems and 13 court systems. So you can imagine there is no dearth of material for me to talk on this topic. Considering I've only been given five minutes, I will make sure I finish in five minutes. But before I go to your question, which is the one on Ontario, I wanted to look at a moment at the FTC rule. And the rule is drafted, leads me to quote, that if the rule makes sense, then chocolate milk comes from brown cows. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is respectfully, that I don't think the rule as drafted makes sense. In, in, in July of 2021, the, the, the Biden administration said, let's draft rules to curtail the unfair use of non-competes. And while I agree that there are unfair uses of non-competes, and as I've always said, bad law, be it statutory or case law, 
is often created by employers. So when employers call me up and they say, well, I have a, a, a trainer in my place who I want to stop from going across the street because they have my clientele and whatever, and they tell me I want to apply a, a, a non-compete, I look at them and say, not sure a court's going to have much sympathy for that, but notwithstanding right, if you want to try it, I'm not sure I'm your right, I'm the right guy because I really don't want to say, I don't, don't want to try to impose it. So what I say to you is not everything about non-competes is bad. More importantly, the exceptions created both under the FTC proposed rule and Ontario don't go far enough. And let me give you two immediate examples. Subchapter J of the rule says what we are out to do is stop unfair methods of competition. Respectfully, I don't quite understand where the competition issue is, and Dean will jump all over me, I'm sure, but I don't quite see the non-competition issue here in, in a non-compete situation. In other words, it's not between two employers, although it's indirectly between two employers, it's rather between an employer and an employee who is free to come work for a company that says, I want you to sign this non-compete. And the non-compete has to be fair and reasonable in respect of time, geographic scope, and the industry scope that it wishes to cover. So that has to be kept in mind. The second point, which I don't understand, is when the FTC chair said that I want to create a more competitive and I want to create a thriving economy by way of this rule when it was introduced in January of this year, I asked myself the question, is 910.3 of the FTC rule, which says there has to be a 25% threshold that a person owns for the business exception for that person to then be covered by a non-compete in the sales agreement. Does that really work? Hedge funds and private equity funds often come in, they buy a bunch of, they buy out the company. And if there are certain people that don't have 25% ownership Am I to understand that they can then cross the street, go and compete, and those that have 25% can't compete? It, it, it's respectfully, I don't think the threshold number works. Because remember, what happens often is these private equity funds often say, I'll buy your company, but I want you to stay on, and I'm ready to give you 5 to 10%. So, if someone owns 25% and they're being given back 10%, does that mean they're only giving up 15% so the non-compete doesn't apply to them? I mean, those are the types of issues which I see happening and raising certain, cons certain concerns. Now, let me turn to Canada. Canada I can set up in three different jurisdictions, Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia, where non-competes are valid, and they become the issue of court intervention and a court will determine, as I said before, whether it's reasonable as to time, scope, and geographic area. Keep in mind, Canada is not a blue pencil jurisdiction. So if your clause is not valid, it is struck down from the beginning. A judge does not rewrite. And language which says that if a judge finds that, you know, 12 months is unreasonable, then it's eight. If eight's unreasonable, it's six. That language doesn't work in Canada either. Judges believe that that is, in effect, an indirect form of blue pencil and therefore is not valid. 
The province of Manitoba has a different approach. They have a two-tiered structure when it comes to injunctions. And at the first tier, the employer is put to a strict test to demonstrate clearly that the clause is reasonable. And if it is not, they are told that their chances of winning are not very good. And so that becomes the mechanism to try to stop these events from occurring and taking time, money, and effort when in reality they could have been dealt with early in the game. So now let me turn to Ontario. Ontario, on the 25th of October, 2021, passed something called Working for Workers Act. As an employer attorney, I can tell you one thing. If you don't like the title of the legislation, you're not going to like what's in it as an employer. And I didn't like this title, and I knew I wasn't going to like what's in it. Under Ontario law, as of October 25th, 2021, all non-competes are invalid, except for the following three examples. If the clause existed prior to October 25th, 2021, it's valid. So that's different from the FTC rule. Number two, the sales exception has three conditions. You have to buy the entire company. It has to be bought from either a sole proprietorship or a partnership. And the people that are, that are being bought out have to join the company as an employee immediately. You fulfill those three conditions, then the non-compete is valid. Doesn't have to be 25%, doesn't have to be 5%. There is no threshold. And last but not least, there is an exception for executives. It is limited to the following people. CEO, president, chief administrative officer, uh, COD, CFO, CIO, chief legal officer, chief HR officer, chief corporate development officer, and any other chief executive position. Now, while the list seems long, and the last one is a free-for-all, as I call it, in my view, it doesn't go far enough. Because there are other people who have been part of the company with whom the company has provided training, dollars, investment of both time and effort, and these people decide they want to get up and leave and now are free to, com free to compete. Where the FTC rule and, and, and the, the Ontario law fail to consider what business reality is, if an employee gets up and resigns and says, I'm quitting, I'm leaving, and then goes across the street to compete, is that really with all due respect, if I can quote what, the, uh, what they said in July of 2021, is that an unfair use? of uh, a, a non-compete. Uh, with all due respect, I don't think it is. I know we'll debate this. We'll debate it till the, cow the cows come home, if you know what I mean. The last point that I wanted to make to you was the following. I don't think clauses that deal with trade secrets, IP clauses, and the like go anywhere close to dealing with this issue. And the recent pulling of the decision or the pulling of the court case that took place between, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, Cartier and, and Tiffany and, and their employees demonstrates that we that this the, the that an, uh, anything short of a non compete doesn't go far enough. At the end of the day, right? May I say that there's a there is a balancing act here. Do we respect the freedom to fairly switch jobs, or do we balance off the freedom of contract? I would suggest to you that no freedom is absolute. And I don't think the FTC rule or the Ontario rule covers off the freedom to contract, which is clearly and should not be unaffected between uh, an employer and an employee to whom 
a true non-compete should apply. Thank you. Thank you. And just having a taste of chocolate milk. Uh, James, uh, your executive clients in London are often employed by firms based in the U.S. Uh, the, the, the close integration of many of the firms, uh, I'm guessing, uh, uh, call special attention in the U.K. to the FTC's action. Can you tell us what's happening with respect to non-competes uh, in the U.K.? Thank you, Mark. Thank you, FC, for having me. And I think as we saw from Danny there, the impassioned uh, 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 words from him, I think this is, you know, he's neatly drawn the battle lines a little bit here. I mean, we can see employers do not want this. There is heavy lobbying happening in the US at the moment against this uh, proposed uh, rule. Um, over, over this side of the pond, we've, we've had slightly less excitement. There's been sort of two, I think, uh, dalliances um, with, with, with interfering with post-termination restrictions generally. Um, back in 2016, there was a consultation by the UK government generally on post-termination restrictions, but the outcome there was post-termination restrictions are valuable and necessary, so sort of to Danny's point a moment ago. Um, the UK government then consulted two years ago um, uh, on non-compete specifically um, and offered sort of two broad proposals. One, pay, employers should pay for non-competes, and two, the exploring whether we outlaw non-competes altogether. Although we were assured about a year ago that the UK government was still working through uh, the responses to that consultation, it's been two years. Um, now, the UK government, as one might know, has had a few things to do in that period. Um, so it's slightly been shelved. Um, but at the moment, we don't even know the, out, uh, the results of that consultation. Um, so we, 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 you know, when you've got a UK central government doing it rather than a sort of FTC, a government agency like the FTC, I think sometimes you just get bogged down in the day-to-day -day of government. Um, so I, I don't think I hold out much hope at the moment that we're going to see similar legislation or regulation to that that we've seen from being proposed by the FTC. But one does wonder actually if the FTC proposal, if the US outlawing does take place, it will, it will provide, I think, an interesting case study um, for, the, for the UK to look at um, in, in, in determining whether we, we do or don't introduce um, any legislation in this area. What was quite fascinating, which I think shows that there is interest in this area in the UK, was just weeks after the FTC announcement, uh, the UK's uh, Competition and Markets Authority, which is sort of our equivalent of the FTC, in a very British uh, way, reminded employers to avoid anti-competitive practices. Now, their focus was very much on the horizontal uh, that Dean mentioned earlier. So the to the business-to-business -business, um, um, restrictions, so agreement, agreements between employers not to poach each other's employees, wage-fixing agreements, information sharing, with the latter information sharing obviously being hugely important of in interest to um, the executive search world, where recruiters are very cautious, or rather should be uh, very cautious, uh, about sharing information between their clients. So I think broadly, look, the UK is a little bit behind the FTC on this one, um, probably largely on account of the fact that the CMA's remit isn't as broad as the FTC, uh, and therefore we are reliant on legislators in order to affect change. Um, and I sort of look forward to discussing some of the other pieces that have come out of this proposed rule um, with the panel a little bit later. Thank you, James. Uh, Johannes, we've learned in our sessions preparing this program that in Germany, non-compete agreements may superficially look the same, but they're really embedded in a much different set of rules and institutions. So can you begin by giving us a primer on the regime of law in Germany? 
I will try my very best to summarize 60 or 100 years of case law in five minutes, I guess. Um, first of all, thank you to be, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, uh, always enjoy these conferences and as the same, same as I think Danny said, uh, great how um, Claire and her team every, always puts everything to together and also thank you to you, Mark, of course. I think our system is, yes, it is, looks the same because we address the same issues um, and some instruments are the same. But I think the crucial difference is that, first of all, we have make a difference between employment agreement non-competes, employment level, law level non-competes and equity non-competes. And for employment law level non-competes, that is what is in the employment contract or sort of uh, added to it. Um, there we need for non-managing employees, we need a, a compensation payment that is paid for the duration of the non-compete period, um, which makes it quite the, the sort of the systematics, I think quite different because first of all, um, it's a quite a substantial payment. It has to be at least 50% of total compensation during the active working period. So that's quite a lot. And therefore I think employers are probably a little sort of more careful whether or not to um, to actually agree on compete because it can be very expensive. This also goes on to sort of sort of regulate on uh, on the duration as well because of course the shorter one it is the, the more um, the, the cheaper it gets um, and it's maybe inherently more fair if you get some money for your um, limitations. So I think that's the main difference. And the other the other difference is which is um, maybe not as easy to to digest. Um, for, for employees, if the, the non-compete sort of the, the, the court would look at the agreed scope and then it would be able to reduce that scope if necessary, if the scope is not supported by legitimate interests of the employer. But that is a very rare case of where the court actually sort of reduces to the amount that is sort of covered by law um, instead of making the entire um, non-compete invalid. Um, there's a slightly different system for uh, ma for managing um, directors and other people who have sort of a um, official function in, in the um, in corporate governance. Uh, for them, um, there is no sort of mandatory um, compensation requirement by, by statutory law, but it's very common because there's court cases saying that, you know, if it's onerous, um, the, the restrictions, then um, the, 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 their non-compete is going to be invalid. Uh, and in order to make it not uh, sort of too onerous, one way one way to do that is to uh, to agree a compensation um, payment. So that's quite a different system. And maybe from a competition point of view, I think it, what is a good idea is that the um, or what may be a good point to to sort of to 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 take into account is that the requirement to really back it up with money is something which sort of um, serves as an incentive for employers to only agree and non-compete where it is necessary. Um, which may sort of as a proxy um, also make it more reasonable for or more supported by legitimate interests. Um, on the other hand, this sort of automatic um, uh, reduction of scope um, is maybe uh, harmful for from an employee's point of view because of course every employer would be tended to, to would tend to simply tempt it and tend to simply, Make the scope as broad as possible because there can he can't go wrong. You know the only thing he can do wrong is leave something out, and then of course it's very difficult for an employee to have such a broad scope and have it reduced in front of a court. That is a process that will take some time. It won't take ages, but it will take some weeks. 
Um, and um, that's that's a reason why something that could be improved upon, I think. And maybe one last point that we haven't touched upon before, but I think that's for my practice, it's very relevant um, because I, that's always a big difference. It's quite cheap to litigate this in Germany compared to the US, um, at least on the employment law level. If, if it's equity, it's, it's more complicated, but generally speaking, uh, um, employment law is something that most well, professional employees could afford to do. And there is, there's even insurance covering, covering that. So, um, you know, it, it's really an option to go to court and just to see how far the non-compete really, really goes. Thanks, Johannes. Um, we spend a lot of time in our preparation discussions asking the question, well, if non-competes go, where will the uh, employer uh, energies uh, go? To non-solicitation agreements, to trade secrets uh, covenants, which are not covered by the FTC rule. And the issue that we've all agreed we want to talk about the most is garden leave. Uh, James, do you want to, uh, as our Londoner, do you want to tell us what garden leave is and what issues you think that's going to raise were the FTC uh, a proposed rule to become a rule? Yeah, as you say, you've sort of got um, the FTC document, 200 pages plus sort of talks about all these ways, alternative ways that businesses should be able to protect their um, confidential information effectively. I know Danny will have strong views on that. Um, but but one thing we have in the UK armory as an employer is, is garden leave clauses. Um, and they are, I think, in virtually every employment contract I see. So employers will typically include notice periods of anywhere between three months up to 12 months for very senior executives. Um, and retain, as I say, this, this ex expressibility to put employees on paid garden leave for any notice period. And I hasten to add that paid garden leave is normally on your basic salary. It will not include bonuses, equity that you might have otherwise earned over that period. So for some of our very highly remunerated uh, clients, that could be quite a small bit of the pie. Um, Normally, what you'll see also is a set off between the two. So you'll, you'll, you'll have a garden leave provision, you'll possibly have a non-compete and other non-solicitation uh, uh, clauses as well. Um, but there'll be a set off such that any garden leave period effectively eats into a non-compete period. Um, and the UK courts haven't allowed, for example, employers to double up to have a chunky notice period during which you're put on garden leave, followed by a chunky non-compete. The two will be effectively looked at together as a sort of collective restraint of trade. Um, I find that those actually working in hedge funds, uh, which Danny alluded to earlier, algorithmic trading firms, um, even very senior executives, uh, so say for those working in those industries, even very senior executives now, I'm seeing in, in financial services, fewer non-competes as far as they exist. Um, and increasingly, actually, these non-competes are not being relied upon for the very reason that employers will typically put a senior person in the garden on garden leave for the duration of the notice, thereby eating into the, the majority, if not all, of any non-compete that might exist. Although there are serious questions about the enforceability of it, I am increasingly seeing hedge funds and algorithmic trading firms include paid restrictions and or very chunky notice garden leave provisions, uh, such that employees are including it now on their resumes and CVs. Effectively, I worked for this uh, algorithmic trading firm for 10 years, and then I'm putting on my LinkedIn profile for two years, I was in the garden. Um, so that's, I mean, that's quite serious. I, I question the enforceability of that, um, but that's that certainly emphasized, I think, the garden leave usage. Um, and, and the way that the FTC proposal is drafted, it appears that restrictions during employment 
would not be covered. And therefore, notice periods, garden leave may be something that US employers increasingly look at, despite obviously the, the, the preference to maintain the at-will employment uh, position. Cody, do you think that garden leave is the um, weakness for uh, executive employees in the FTC draft? I think if you look at the language at first blush, if you sort of read it very technically and you see the words that say that this rule is about an agreement after the conclusion of the worker's employment, you might say, well, garden leave is during employment, and so this rule doesn't touch it. I think there's a very strong argument to be made that employment ends when the person stops performing services. And so, you know, using garden leave when a non-compete is not legally enforceable is, is I think, just calling a non-compete something else. And, um, you know, and, and as James had pointed out, the compensation that's generally paid during the garden leave is not the entire compensation. It's the base salary only. And there are many industries where that is a very small component of the employee's compensation. Um, and I would also say, you know, a garden leave is actually worse than a non-compete because it prevents the employee from working anywhere even somewhere that's not competitive. It's, it's a complete ban on other employment. Um, and even if you, you know, are kept whole uh, economically, which you're not, you're still facing a, a period where you're not moving your career forward and you're not able to you know, continue on the career path you have. And that can have an effect beyond just the period of you know, the garden leave. It can have an effect for numerous years in someone's employment and their career trajectory. So there's a huge cost on individuals um, with this type of restriction. And, and finally, I think that garden leave, you know, I think, I think the idea that there would be a turn to garden leave really shows that a lot of the use of non-competes, and I think this is sort of responding to, to one of Danny's arguments earlier, a lot of the use of non-competes is not actually aimed at protecting trade secrets, at protecting goodwill with clients. A lot of the use of non-competes and the use of garden leave is aimed at preventing mobility, um, at, at forcing people to stay where they are when they don't really want to, and, and, and having to choose between you know, a huge economic and career cost to be able to make a move to a new employer. Danny, I know you wanted to join the conversation on garden leave. Uh, with respect to two of Cody's comments, I agree with one of them. And I agree with the one about sitting someone out on garden leave. I agree with her. That has a long-term potential consequence to the employee. And that's why I try to shy away from it in my own consulting work with clients and companies. Where I don't, uh, where I don't agree is that, you know, on the issue of the compete notion, because if a non-compete was not subject to court scrutiny and there were not many, many cases which said what has to be reasonable in a non-compete, I would have more of a problem to debate Cody on that point. But there are cases, and so we need to keep that in mind. The point on, on garden leave in Canada, why did the law pass in Ontario? It passed in Ontario without much fanfare. It was a, believe it or not, a right-wing government that passed the legislation in Ontario, it was not a, uh, you know, a more of a 
an NDP type government that passed it. And the reason why it passed in Ontario was twofold. The courts had come to a conclusion a long time ago that non-competes, they were never going to be valid in the eyes of the judiciary because they were serious restraints of trade or ability of someone to, to work. On top of which, garden leaves were also declared illegal because they were tantamount to what was considered constructive dismissal. In other words, because work and the ability to do work is a fundamental obligation of the, of the employment uh, relationship, by not giving the work, you ultimately frustrated the contract and therefore it came to an end. Other jurisdictions like Quebec, Ontario, uh, Alberta and British Columbia, accept garden leaves. I put an asterisk beside Alberta and BC because the use of garden leaves is based on obiters, based on the Statutory Employment Standards Act in those two provinces. It'll be interesting to see if the courts have to take on the actual issue of whether garden leaves are legal or not, but to date they have not. So that are those are my points on the status of garden leave. Oh, sorry, one last point, which is important. In Canada, if you're on garden leave, you're not getting only your base pay. You're probably getting your entire full package because remember, we are not an at-will jurisdiction. And therefore, the courts say, you want to park somebody, you're going to pay for that parking. Johannes, do you want to join the discussion on garden leave or should I ask you a question on another subject? <laughs> I'm very happy to answer any question you have. So, um, but I'm very happy also to chip in on garden leave. Please do. Uh, we, we, we have that. Obviously, we have that as well. Um, and I see the same combination um, that there may be a long garden leave. And in, in the, under German law, the, it doesn't eat into the non-compete. So it would be an additional time of sort of downtime, uh, which can make i think you know one year of non-compete is quite is quite a long time but not too bad maybe but uh combined with one year of garden leave then that's very serious um so i've got to agree with that and i think it's not always fair to say that um but maybe from sort of an economic perspective i wonder you know what is the the economics behind it uh, i think it's sometimes it's irrational um that employers would put someone two years on garden leave if there's not a proper reason. I, I think that, that those cases happen. Um, but I think it's a very expensive um, uh, sort of way to uh, just sort of make sure one person doesn't, doesn't join the competition, you know. Um, so I, I, I think that if, if the FTC's thinking is sort of, if, if, you, if we take that and, you know, look from an economic point of view, I think there's something not going correctly, but that's not, the, the non-compete non is not at, at the heart of it, I think. But the mechanics of the employer's decision really um, are, 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 are to blame for some part, some part of it. While we have you, Johannes, you had some, your own views about uh, uh, fairness in this regime of law and maybe they're different from the FTC. Do you want to, you want to share that with us a little bit? I think that was more my impetus to, to have the sort of a look at the, the panel, look at that. Um, because I think in the end, I mean, maybe Cody accepted, uh, accepted. Um, I think we do see some basic, uh, I do both sides. I, I represent employers and employees. Um, maybe a little more employers, but um, also quite a few top executives um, with relatively strong non-competes and or, or long non-competes and garden leaf um, provisions. Um, and um, I would say that, you know, there's there's a reasonable, the good reason, sometimes there's a good reason why you need a non-compete. 
especially because something like uh, prote protection of secret um, secrets, um, trade secrets and so on, it's difficult to prove. It's far easier to make sure that someone doesn't compete. So I think there's a point for it there. But on the other hand, um, how long is really reasonable and how long is there an actual need for the employer? Um, and I would say something like six to 12 months or so, that may be understandable, especially if it's coupled with an economic uh, compensation. Um, and I think that maybe, and again, this economic comp compensation would also have the effect of sort of discipline, of creating discipline for the employer because it costs something to do it. So you really need to be sure you need to spend this money. And I sort of wanted to sort of, I don't know, kick off, kick the, kick off the discussion on this uh, if possible, if I'm not taking away your um, your moderation there, um, if, if that's a good idea. Because I think the FTC's approach, while we will at Germany, of course, look very closely at it, um, and it's a good impetus to sort of question what, what we've been doing all the time. I think the, the, the main weakness is it's very sort of black and white, you know. Uh, let me get Dean back in, uh, not only as an antitrust leader, lawyer, but also as a Californian, which is pointed to by employee lawyers as a high tech, uh, booming, uh, uh, leading sector economy where non-competes are already uh, not enforceable. Dean, you have views about the economics and the fairness issues here. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and to respond a bit to Danny's question about, I think, what is unfair about reasonable non-competes or why are they anti-competitive? And I think they're called non-competes for a reason, right? They remove competition from the economy. And the antitrust laws, the fundamental belief of the antitrust laws are that competition is the uh, best way to allocate resources throughout the economy. That in an individual case, an employer may uh, prefer to keep a worker rather than let someone else hire them away in their own industry. But generally, even that employer will benefit from the increase in economic productivity and innovation that results from the free flow of labor across the economy. And so in California, where I uh, am fortunate to work and live, uh, we have largely uh, prohibited non-competes for quite a while. And the California economy has been doing quite well. And I think it's pretty clear that the reason why Silicon Valley exists is because of employees leaving companies and starting competing companies. That's the story of Silicon Valley. Um, and I think with apologies to uh, Johannes, um, I think uh, you know, California is poised to uh, overtake Germany as the world's fourth largest economy. Um, and all that has happened while this prohibition has been in place. Um, and, and even in a situation in the US where it is very easy for a company to relocate to another state that enforces non-competes, um, companies choose to stay here despite the more strict um, legal uh, regime. Uh, one other comment on sort of why I think the FTC is doing what it's doing now. Um, Prior to the rulemaking, the FTC solicited comments. So there, there's now a comment period after releasing the proposed rule, but before they released the proposed rule, they invited comments. And I co-authored the, the antitrust section of the ABA's comment to the FTC that summarized economic research in this area. Yeah. And in the past two decades or so, there's been a lot of economic research showing the costs of non-competes, you know, I mean, we can think of the benefits. I think we can understand the arguments for the employer, but on the cost side, 
it's really beyond question now that non-compete clauses reduce wages. Um, you know, when you reduce mobility, you reduce wages. It's sort of a law of physics and labor economics. Um, you know, an employer will not pay an employee more than they need to in order to keep them at the company and keep them productive. That's how pay levels are set. And so when you restrict artificially mobility through either a non-compete clause with that employee or with an agreement with an employer, you remove competition, you know, it's a non-compete agreement, you remove competition for that employee, you reduce their mobility, you don't have to pay them as much to keep them, their pay goes down. That is a big cost to that worker. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, it's a cost to the economy where that worker cannot go out and start their own company and innovate. So there are huge costs on the side of enforcement and on the side of the legitimate interests, you know, that there is a fairness balance, certainly. Um, and I think the FTC has done a great job in describing the alternative means that an employer can use to protect those, those interests. And one, one item that jumped out at me that we haven't mentioned so far is in training, um, that the FTC rule contemplates that an employer could ask the employee to pay back training costs, but it has to be reasonable. It has to be a reasonable reflection of the cost of that training. So I think the FTC is trying to create a rule that is workable and that acknowledges uh, legitimate interests on the employer side and does what it can to protect it while not um, unduly interfering with competition in the economy or with the workers' wages. Yeah. Dean, while we have you, uh, there's a question here in the chat box from Poland, incredulous about uh, the uh, U.S. coming down on horizontal agreements between employers. Can I, can I try to style a question in which you'll tell us what you think the future holds, both with respect to uh, uh, the government's attitude toward horizontal agreements and this, this FTC rule as it moves through the process, proposed rule. Well, I think the FTC rule is interesting because it focuses on vertical agreements between employers and employees. And in the antitrust world, as I mentioned, there's a big distinction between horizontal or vertical. Whether that's legitimate or not, is subject to a lot of debate among economists and antitrust lawyers and scholars in this country. But in terms of how the courts will look at it, I think the big question probably is whether the FTC has the power to do what it's doing. I think that challenge to the FTC rulemaking just, you know, does it have the ability to do this? That's probably going to be the big headline litigation if this rule is implemented. Um, and then if it's if it's legitimate, if it's upheld in the courts, um, I think it's a pretty straightforward application of the language of the rule. Um, but I think that's I think the action is going to be in the enforceability of the rule. Yes. And I'm guessing that. Uh, well, I know that the, the current Supreme Court is not that friendly about what it may view as expansion of the, uh, of the scope of the federal administrative state. Uh, my friend Ming Evans in London asks uh, in the chat about the propriety of uh, paid for restrictive covenants uh, where the employer has the ability to opt out uh, uh, and not make the payment rather than enforce the covenant at the time of the employee's departure. As I understand the FTC proposal, it, it is not interested in a distinction between uh, compensated and non-compensated um, restrictive covenants. Uh, would anyone like to take a shot at that? I mean, from the German perspective, I could simply start by saying uh, we have a provision that says it's possible to sort of um, waive the non-compete, but it's sort of the um, 
the effect of waiving the non-compete is immediate. Therefore, if the employment relationship ends, there will be no non-compete, even, even if it is one day later. But the compensation uh, entitlement only goes away with one year's notice. So if you waived your non-compete immediately before the end of the employment relationship, you would still have to pay one year of compensation for it. So in the end, this is a situation where the employer has to give the employee a long, long a lot of warning time. Um, the reason for this is to, to sort of to, to allow um, the employee to make proper dip, dip, um, dip, um, dispositions um, on whether or not there's a non-compete or not. So it's not, not as maybe as, as, as extreme as the point of the, the situation that was described in Germany. In the US, the rule, I think you're right, the, the rule does not does not make a distinction. Um, and, and this concept of you know a non-compete where the employer can unilaterally decide at the end of employment whether or not it wants to enforce it is really problematic from the perspective of employees and executives because if you're going to interview at a new company and they want to offer you a position, the first question is, when can you start? Um, and when you have a, a non-compete that could be enforced or could be waived, you can't answer that question. And so, you know, if that's, if, if there's a, can you start immediately or can you start a year from now or two years from now, it's very hard for organizations um, to plan and, and you know, wait when they can't or bring someone sooner than they planned. It makes it very difficult. Um, and so I'm not a fan of, of that possibility either. Mark, just from a Canadian perspective, I'm sorry. Two things. Number one is one of the things I see a problem with the FTC rule is, is what happens if five years ago a company gave a bonus or consideration to sign a non-compete, and then with a swoosh of the pen, that non-compete disappears. Does the employee have to pay back the money? If I was representing an employer, I would raise that question and say, I now want the back the $50,000 that I had. To come back to your point about what happens with non-competes and the waiver of non-competes, in Canada, I have seen employers waive non-competes and waive the ability to put someone on garden leave to basically be equivalent to what you otherwise would be entitled to by way of reasonable notice of sever or severance. In other words, if you're free to go out there and compete, why do I owe you a penny anyway if you find a job at relatively the same terms and conditions from, from the same day that you're let go or the next day you're let go? So it's interesting how the ability to do certain things is different because of the nature or the differences in laws. Sorry, Mark. Okay, uh, I, we just have a couple of minutes and I wanna, I, I'm mindful that our IFC audience uh, includes uh, folks who are particularly interested in the impact of, uh, of the FTC proposed rule on financial services professionals. And I'm thinking particularly of hedge fund people, private equity people. And I know the panelists would like to say something about that. James, do you want to start us on that? Yeah, I mean, I think from a UK perspective, that's 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 quite interesting um, because sitting in the UK as an employee, it's it's quite common actually. Although you're on a UK employment agreement, for there to be these sort of global long-term incentive plans or equity documents sitting in the background that are sometimes governed by Delaware or New York law. Um, 
now the UK courts have, have, have sought to maintain that regardless of what they're governed by, UK public policy still, still sort of sits atop all of that because it, it's part and parcel of the employment relationship. But still, it'll be interesting to see if those are US, you know, New York governed agreements or Delaware governed agreements, and we have hypothetically this non-compete outlawing, those will have to be removed from any documents uh, where they that where they might exist in equity documents, um, and then you question often what employers are trying to do is harmonise, aren't they? Um, so what are you going to have a sort of um, a starting position, and then at the back end? Oh, in the UK though, we'll try and seek to enforce this non-compete, uh, and in Germany we'll take this view, perhaps. Um, but I sort of struggle to think in harmonising whether that really uh, achieves that aim. Um, so I think that that will be potentially very interesting and whether whether what US employers will do with that, um, uh, I don't know, because in the UK, I think um, um, it, it's, it's potentially going to be quite interesting. Dean, really quick, do you think this is a situation, and I guess I'm just asking you to speculate, that the mm-hmm. FTC has decided to come in broad and then wait for people to argue for uh, a Swiss cheese of uh, exceptions? I think that is the approach they're taking. Um, and I have no doubt there are, there's a lot of uh, lobbying going on as James uh, referred to, to create exceptions and holes in the Swiss cheese. Um, I, uh, I'm fairly confident though, that they're gonna stick by their guns. Um, I think the proposed rule will be the, that's, that's my prediction, that the proposed rule will be the final mm-hmm. rule. Um, but but we'll see. So that is that is my total speculation, based on you know just my own, my own thoughts and intuitions. Well, what an interesting way to finish, you know, as our as our famous American thinker Yogi Berra uh, is famous for saying, it's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. And so, uh, thank you very much for leaving us with that. Sadly, our time is up. And I was asked to say, and I do want to say that if you want to meet some of these panelists in person, you might attend the uh, IFSI uh, 2023 conference on June 20 in London. It's a one day conference under the working title Risk, Reward, Regulatory and Reputation Management Issues for Senior Executives and Founders. So if, if, if you're just a fan of alliteration, that would be a reason to uh, go. And uh, it's a, I was there last year. It's a wonderful conference. And uh, I hope to see some of you there in London on the 20th of June. Thank you so much to the audience and to IFSI for helping us put this together. And mostly uh, for my co-panelists who've taught me so much, uh, not only today, but in our run-up to the uh, panel. Uh, I'll say uh, good, good night or, or good afternoon to everyone. Thank you very much. <laughs>